You're listening to the podcast Opioid Abuse on the South Shore, where I, Desmond O'Neill, sit down with different people and organizations working to address the growing opioid crisis. In this episode, you'll hear me speaking with Dr. Joseph Schrand about the psychology of addiction as well as the program that he runs to help young people who are addicted to drugs. So I'm Joseph Schrand. I'm a child psychiatrist and also adult psychiatrist and also board certified in addiction medicine. I'm the chief of all the child and adolescent psychiatry programs for High Point Treatment Center. Uh, I am also the creator and founder of Drug Story Theater, which we will talk about a little bit later on. I'm the faculty of Harvard Medical School, faculty of Children's Hospital, you know, and hanging out here in Marshfield, which is a great place to be. How do people end up addicted to opioids in the first place? I think before you can really talk about opioid use and abuse, I think you need to back up a little bit. Um, we know that the, among the greatest risk factors for first-time substance use of anything is low self-esteem. So imagine all these kids who are not feeling great about themselves, um, feeling a lot of stress, maybe anxiety, maybe even depressed. One way that they find pleasure is by using. So that's really the difficulty. So that's what we call, you know, first-time substance use. If you think about it, there are three main substances that kids are most likely to use. Nicotine, alcohol, and marijuana. And there's a lot of evidence to support that those are the things they think can become the catalyst to further opioid use. So it's a progression. It's very rare, I think, for somebody to start off using opioids, but it can happen. And many of the situations in which it happens is when the medication has been prescribed. So we have a lot of uh, prescribers who were just writing out a prescription for Vicodin or Percocet or any type of the opioid. That can be a real problem. And we know that that really has has contributed a lot to the epidemic that we have now. So if you really think about what are the risk factors that go into this, first is low self-esteem, and then this progression that moves on from there. But there are some people who just use, you know, for any number of other reasons. It's important to, I think, understand about brain development in all of this. So if you start using drugs or alcohol after the age of 21, one out of 25 people are at risk for lifelong addiction. If you start using before the age of 18, that number goes from one in 25 to one in four, just because of the way the brain is developing. So when we do drug free theater, which we'll get to, I can have an auditorium of 800 kids. I'll have 200 of them stand up. And I'll say, this is how many of you are at risk right now for addiction. Could be this 200, that 200. I don't know which one and they don't know which one. So the real message for kids is if you really want to do something, just wait. Wait until your brain's a little bit more developed. So addiction is not about morality. It's about mortality. It's just the way the brain develops. And the part that that really we need to look at here that I'm not sure we're really looking at as much is... What's causing all this stress in these kids? 
Why are so many kids struggling with low self-esteem? What's happening in our society that these kids are either feeling so much pressure that they don't think they're good enough, strong enough, fast enough, brave enough, good enough at sports, good enough at writing, a good enough friend, a good enough child. We got to do something about that because that is really where the issue is. You know, kids are amazing. And why they would feel this way, something that we really need to look at what our society is. What are the expectations that we have for these kids? That so many of them have such low self-esteem that they want to use. It's real, but, yeah. but think about also what we ask a kid to do. Yeah. Eight o'clock in the morning, maybe you have math. 45 minutes, maybe an hour and a half. Then you have English. Then you may have a foreign language. Then you may have sports. Then you may have science. I mean, in your job, are you asked to shift from subject to subject like that in the course of a few hours? I mean, it's, it's really an interesting educational thing that we have developed here. And, and I'm, not, I'm not saying that that's one of the reasons, but we're asking these kids' brains to shift a lot in a way that human brains don't usually shift that quickly. Just because you have low self-esteem doesn't mean you have to then go on to use. And what, one of the things that, that we really try to teach in drug story theater is everybody wants the same thing. Everybody just wants to feel valuable. We just want to feel valued by someone else. And at every and any moment in time, you can remind someone of their value. And every time you remind someone of their value, you increase your own value. And everyone wants to feel valuable. So it's really the simplest thing. Peer pressure does not need to be a negative thing. Peer pressure can be a very positive thing. So kids can help each other not use, or at least wait until you're 21. Have you seen any trends in have you seen any trends in drug use over the last five or ten years? It's interesting because because some things do go in these um, trends in which there's something popular for a little while. Uh, so a few years ago, something called triple C's were really popular. This was a, is an over-the-counter uh, cough and cold medicine that people would, would literally go into CVS or Walgreens or, you know, any one of the pharmacies and just take it off the shelf. Usually not pay for it um, and walk out. And then they would take six, eight, 10, 24 of these things where you're usually meant to take one or maybe two at the most a day. Those medicines now are behind the counter. So they're still not prescription medicine, but people have caught on enough. We say, okay, we're now not going to make this quite so easily accessible to people. So that's, that was a trend. Uh, for a little while, we saw glue sniffing. So kids were, you know, sniffing glue. There was a trend where um, there were those uh, sprays to, to clean your computer screen. So kids were huffing on that. All of these things were really, really bad. I mean, they, they had some serious, serious effects on kids' brains. Luckily, the brain is, is quite plastic, which means that it can recoup. Uh, but it, it took a toll on a lot of kids. The other thing we saw was spice or synthetic marijuana, K2. It's got all sorts of different names. That trend really took off quite, quite intensely, probably five, six years ago. I mean, it was really a lot of kids coming in. And that 
was very dangerous. This was a, a synthetic cannabinoid, nothing like weed at all. Kids would get psychotic. It could shut down their kidneys, shut down their heart. I mean, seizures, really bad. That was a bad one. Um, no drug is particularly good under the age of 21, and that's the point. But now we have a real problem, because now Massachusetts has legalized marijuana. And for many, many people, marijuana is safe, but not under the age of 18, really not under the age of 21, because it can have effects on your brain, and it can be that gateway. But we now have legalized weed, so we need to address it. It's not going to go away. No one's going to you know, take that vote away. Um, so weed is definitely on the rise. We've always seen alcohol. We've always seen weed. We saw a lot of prescription pain medications, a lot of Percocet and Oxy. Um, and then we saw our fair share of folks with heroin and now fentanyl, which is so dangerous. Um, we're actually seeing weed that's laced with fentanyl. Since the passing of laws intended to crack down on opioid abuse, have you seen an increase in heroin use? Yeah, absolutely. Whether there was a crackdown or not, um, buying Percocets off the street was way, way, way more expensive. So even if, if you weren't being prescribed it anymore, it was still available on the street. But it was like 60 bucks a pill, you know, for, for a 60 milligram Percocet. Maybe even more, but... I don't, want to, I don't want to put people, you know, out of business. Yes, I do. Um, but uh, that, was, that was one of the big things. Now, the, the prescription pain medication, we think that that epidemic probably started in the mid-2000s. So the CDC, the Center for Disease Control, um, put together some numbers. In 2007, they looked back how many prescription pain medicines have been prescribed in 2007. And they converted all of them to Vicodin. So these were called Vicodin equivalents. So some people may have seen the show House, right? So House is addicted to Vicodin. It's a prescription pain medicine. So if you took all the Oxycontin, Oxycodone, Morphine, Percocet, all these things and converted them to Vicodin, enough Vicodin equivalent was prescribed in 2007 so that every single one of the more than 300 million people in the United States could have five milligrams of Vicodin every four hours for three weeks. So think about that. You're just born or you're just about to die. You would have five milligrams of Vicodin every four hours for three weeks. So another way to, to sort of conceptualize this and look at it, Vicodin is about this big. So if you took all that Vicodin and stacked it end to end to end, it would reach from here to the moon and back and three times around the earth. Just think about that line of pills. So that's 2007. That's when things, I think, were really out of control in that way. People were prescribing. And the pharmaceutical companies, many of them, you know, were saying, well, these aren't addictive. You know, that was one of the, the big problems. So uh, physicians and pharmaceutical companies have a lot to be responsible for. And that's why I think many of us now are, you know, will prescribe Percocet if we need to for pain management. Uh, 
Um, but we also recognize that, that we really let the horse out of the barn. And that's a bit of a pun because horse is a slang for heroin. It seems like it would help to keep track of how much is being prescribed. Well, we now, we now actually have an electronic way of doing that. It's called the MassPAT, where um, prescribers have access to a database where you can plug in the name of the person and their date of birth, and you can get a history of the, uh, the narcotics, now Neurontin, all the Adderalls, the benzodiazepines, anything that is a controlled substance, you can see when they last filled it and who wrote the prescription. So that's cut down a lot on doctor shopping. Um, but, you know, some people, you know, will say they're in pain, and they are, and they need to be treated. So we can't just say, uh, you know, no pain medicines. I mean, pain is real. But I don't know whether you really need, you know, 800 milligrams of Percocet to treat it. Yeah, I, and you know, and this is, and the, and this is the other thing, you know, that that really happens with with folks with addiction, is they develop what's called a dependency. So you know, a kid or an adult may start off with five milligrams of Percocet, but that may not be enough after just a few weeks. So then they go to ten, then twenty, then thirty, and then get to a point where they're not getting high anymore. They're just using so they don't get sick, so they don't go into withdrawal, because opioid withdrawal is incredibly uncomfortable. Not necessarily life-threatening, but incredibly uncomfortable. Overdosing on those medications and heroin is life-threatening. And, you know, that gets into a whole nother sort of arena, which a lot of people will say to me, well, Dr. Schrand, you've worked with so many people who've overdosed and they still go back and use the next day, sometimes the next hour. And I think people really need to understand what that means. This is showing that this hold of these medications is so powerful that it even overcomes your desire to survive. But remember, what happens in the opioid overdose is these folks are practically unconscious. And my hypothesis is they don't remember that they died. So they don't have then that, that automatic reflex to not do something. You know, if you're in a dangerous situation and you survive it, the next time you even think about that situation, you may react and say, I'm not going anywhere near that. It's not the same with the opioids because they're high. And so, and therefore, you don't have that same very primitive response to avoid a dangerous situation. Because our brains are, are beautifully attuned to avoiding dangerous situations once we've been in them. Can you tell me about Drug Story Theater? Drug Story Theater. All right. So let me, let me just tell you what it is first. So, um, so we take kids in the early stages of recovery. We teach them improvisational theater. And then we use something called psychodrama, and they create their own scripted shows about the seduction of addiction to and recovery from drugs and alcohol. And then they perform these shows for middle schools and high schools, so the treatment of one becomes a prevention of many. And that's our slogan. The treatment of one becomes a prevention of many. 
And in between each scene of the show, the kids step out of character and they do these PowerPoint presentations teaching the audience about the neuroscience of adolescent brain development and why it's at such risk for addiction. And all the kids in the audience take a pre-show neuroscience quiz, which is answered during the show, and then they take the exact same quiz after the show. And we are measuring how kids who learn about their brain change their perception about the use of drugs and alcohol and the effect on their school, their relationships, and also the addictive potential of marijuana. Because a lot of people don't think marijuana is addictive, but it is. And then, after the kids have, have done um, the quiz, there's a talk back between the audience and our kids in the show. And that's remarkably powerful. Uh, the wisdom uh, of our drugs-free theater kids is quite, quite amazing. The way they can articulate, you know, why they started using, and the vast majority, low self-esteem. What they started using, the vast majority started with weed. And then the course of their progression, you know. And how they look back and wish that there had been something different. And that's what we're teaching the audience, is the main difference is self-esteem. You can remind someone of their value. And the real message with Drugs Free Theater is based on the neuroscience of the brain. There's a chemical, all drugs and alcohol force the brain to make this chemical called dopamine. It's a very ancient chemical. It's been a companion with us through evolution for billions and billions of years. But there's another chemical of pleasure. So there's dopamine, which has a lot of different uses in the body. Dopamine is involved in fine motor control, has a lot of other things that go on with it. And pleasure is certainly one of them. And not always addictive pleasure, but certainly when it comes to drugs and alcohol, that is the driving force, is dopamine. But then there's this other chemical that's only several hundreds of millions of years old, as opposed to billions and billions of years old. And that's called oxytocin. Not oxycontin, oxytocin, which is in essence the neurohormone of trust. So that's the chemical that's released when somebody says you're amazing and you get that rush. That's oxytocin. And what we know now is that dopamine interferes with oxytocin. And that's what we teach the kids. So the drug that's involved with alcohol, marijuana, heroin, dopamine is released and it interferes with the brain chemical of trust. And for all people who are listening who may have been involved either with drugs or alcohol or know people, think about trust. How many heroin addicts do you trust? So here's what we teach the kids. You can get high, but the price you're gonna pay is trust. It's just the way the brain works. It's not about morality. It's about mortality. This is the way the brain works. So, you know, we're very, very honored that Blue Cross Blue Shield has partnered with us and they've come forward and they approached us. They knew about Drug Street Theater because we really are trying to create a treatment model using prevention and a prevention model using treatment. The treatment of one becomes a prevention of many. Now, we started this. The idea came out back in 2010. I'd already started CASEL, which was my adolescent substance abuse program through High Point Treatment Center. 
Um, and I started thinking, you know, how do we, how do we help these kids first remind them of their value and give them a different kind of pleasure? And in my history, I did some theater in my early days. Uh, my daughter, Sophie, uh, also was doing theater. She actually was doing behavioral neuroscience and theater at Northeastern. And she and I started thinking about, can we create a theater group so kids can talk about their stories and perform in front of other kids? Because there is nothing like that experience of having an audience give you a round of applause. It is an amazing rush, and it's all oxytocin. And what it really is, is all these hundreds of people in the audience, these strangers, reminding our kids of their value. Everybody wants to feel valuable. Respect leads to value, and value leads to trust. And trust is oxytocin. So that was the idea. And then we were very fortunate. Um, Vinny DeMacito, who at the time was the state rep at Plymouth and running for senator, he'd heard me talk about this several years before. He was the one who really uh, helped us get to the first round of funding. The governor saw the show in the first year, loved it, has always supported us. Tim Cruz, huge supporter. And, and in fact, all the district attorneys uh, throughout the Commonwealth have wanted to help support Drug Street Theater. So that's Drug Street Theater. So why is it important? It's important because there now is a place where kids in recovery can go and know that they will always be welcomed and they have something to contribute. They have something they can give other people. They don't need to be judged anymore. As long as we continue to stigmatize people, they will not come for treatment. Why on earth would you want to come for treatment if somebody thinks that you are bad or broken or less than? So one of the things we can all do for each other is to get rid of stigma. Stigma is now the thing that is, I think, the greatest barrier to folks getting treatment because they're afraid. And that's not a bad thing because what it means is that even folks with addiction still care what other people think about them. And that's powerful. We can really capitalize on that part of who we are as human beings. One of my new phrases uh, for the kids in drugs free theater, but everybody in recovery, is contribute to society to help with your sobriety. Contribute to society to help with your sobriety. When you give to somebody else, you're increasing your value, which decreases your low self-esteem and improves it. But what we can do for those who are not using is we can contribute to society to help with their sobriety. So what can you do today to get rid of some stigma so folks can come out and get the help that they need and come out of the shadows? How does stigma play a role in this? we commit a crime. One of my other phrases is, addiction is not a crime, but can lead to them. And the crime really is that we've turned our backs for many, many years. And that's, that's part of why, you know, I'm proud to work for a group like High Point Treatment Center, um, you know, run by Daniel Mumbauer. This group was working with folks with addiction long before it was sexy. It's now sexy 
You know, we want to do something about the opioid crisis, and we've got all this money that's mobilized. But let me tell you, there's nothing sexy about it. Uh, this is life and death. And these folks uh, deserve to get the best care they can. I've heard people say, well, they knew what they were doing. Why should we help them? They knew they were doing a drug. Well, you know, we say that about someone with diabetes, right? Do we say that about people with cancer? We actually do. You know that the first thing in the literature, when you look at it, the first thing somebody's asked was when they have lung cancer is, did you smoke? So it's subtle, sometimes not so subtle. But yeah, we got to do something about it or, or you know, we are now culpable. And that's why I'm worried about marijuana. I really am. Um, because like I said, for many people, it's perfectly fine. You know, but for some people, it's just not. And certainly for anybody who's under the age of 21, it is not safe. What physical effects does opioid addiction have on the body? The opioids affect your heart rate, your breathing, your stomach, especially, you know, in overdose. So imagine an overdose that you can't breathe. What do you think happens? You can die. That's right. So there's this dependency that develops. It's this really interesting high that, that people described. It's this euphoria. It's the sense, somebody said, like a warm blanket coming over you. So usually withdrawal is everything opposite than what the high is. So you think about that, right? So if there's a sense of warmth, the withdrawal can be chills, your muscles can shake, um, you can get vomiting, diarrhea. These are incredibly uncomfortable, very primitive, primitive responses, in part because of the part of the brain that's being affected. Part of the brain is the brain stem which is responsible for everything automatic, for breathing and heart rate. And the brainstem has a lot of receptor sites for the heroin, the opioids. That's where it can go. It goes to other parts of the brain as well, but when it comes to the physiology, that's really part of what's being affected. So the withdrawal is incredibly uncomfortable for these folks. You know, they, they have chills and muscle aches, as I said, and their stomach flips over and they can just feel miserable, and then they use. They don't get high, but all the symptoms go away, and that the brain remembers. The brain remembers the next time you feel miserable, what are you waiting for? Go use. And that can be the cycle. And uh, it's something that we, we need to be very respectful of because it's a very insidious and dangerous drug, you know. We need to be sort of humble around it, but that doesn't mean we're going to let it win. You know, I've got so many of my adolescent patients who will say to me, you know, well, marijuana is, you know, it's natural. And I'll remind them, so is opium, you know. And this is the derivative of, you know, all the opioids is based on that. You know, we've made synthetic opium. Same chemical, attacks the same part of the brain. 
How are young people's bodies affected differently by opioid abuse? Well, I'm not sure that it really is affected that differently. You know, I think um, addiction is addiction and dependency is dependency. So, I mean, I've had 13 and 14-year-olds who are addicted to heroin. You know, just because you have a young brain doesn't mean you're not going to get addicted. And the withdrawal is just the same. I do remember doing an NPR show years ago when all this stuff was beginning to come out. Um, and they said, well, Dr. Schrand, you know, there's trend data to show that there are fewer addicts, heroin addicts, in their 50s and 60s than when they're younger. Do they outgrow it? I said, no, they die. So there really is minimal difference uh, in the physiological effect of withdrawal, whether you're a little kid or an adult. Um, you know, I think that the, the main difference is that some young kids still have that sense of being invulnerable, and so they may use way more than, uh, than they realize. And, you know, we've, we've used Narcan on a lot of kids. You know, Narcan is this great, great medicine to reverse, you know, the opioid overdose. It's not permanent, you know. Drifts away in 20 minutes, you may need to use it again and again and again, but it's saved a lot of lives. I think, you know, the, the most remarkable thing about Narcan for me as a prescriber is it is the only medicine that I prescribe where I expect the person I'm prescribing it to, to use it on someone else. It's the only medicine that I'm okay with diverting. There isn't any other medicine that I prescribe where I, where I encourage somebody to say, yeah, you know, I'm going to give this to my friend. But pretty much every one of the kids that comes out of my substance abuse program walks out with a prescription of Narcan because they're probably going to come in touch with somebody who needs it. Hopefully not them. But I want them to have it so they can use it on somebody else and then call the police right away and call the EMTs, get them over there for help. How does opioid abuse affect the community? I think people are ashamed. I think that that's part of the stigma, you know, not in my community, because someone with an opioid addiction is considered to be a person who lives in a cardboard box under a bridge someplace. They have no value. You know, they have less than value. They are a drain on society. So I think that uh, that has been a major problem that we are all addressing. That's why I keep saying addiction is not about morality. It's about mortality. So we have groups like Marshall Facts, Situate. You know, we've got a whole bunch of people now. We've got a governor that's involved. We've got senators and congressmen and state reps and selectmen and people in positions of power who are trying their best uh, to say, we need to do something. Um, but I think it's still difficult for a community to accept that it would be in my backyard. And that, that makes sense if you're using the paradigm of morality. If you're using the paradigm of morality, then it makes sense. You would say, I don't want to have anything to do with these people because they could corrupt me. You know, that's why 
I don't use the word disorder. You know, I use the word condition. You will never hear me say substance abuse disorder because now we've got a whole group of people that are disordered and this group isn't. We've created a barrier. We've created a stigma. We've created two groups. So, um, I think more and more in communities, people are willing to accept we have folks who need help, which is different than to say, I have a bad person in my community, a person who needs help. I don't know anybody who started using drugs with the intention of becoming addicted, but many, many have. And I don't know anybody who started using drugs with the intention of hurting somebody else, but all of them have. And for that, they're taking responsibility, not blame, but responsibility, which is empowering. When we teach our kids in drugs-free theater and at CAS on my other addiction program, is if anybody says, you know, look what drugs took from you, tell them they're wrong. Drugs didn't take anything from you. You gave it away and you can take it back. How does stigma in the community affect addiction? Imagine for a moment that the biggest reason people use is low self-esteem and they want to feel some pleasure. So they use drugs and then are immediately told they're bad people. Huh, how does that affect their self-esteem? So then they're going to use again because they have to feel something want to feel some pleasure. And even, you know, the people who are the most addicted still care what other people think about them. They may not understand that much how they affect other people. And we've got a lot of literature to support this. So there's something called theory of mind. We can't see somebody else's mind, so we have to guess and theorize what are they thinking or feeling. That's called empathy. But what we really want to know is what are they thinking about us? And developmentally, that part of how do you see me comes before my ability to take your point of view. So that's important. So we know that in addiction, the part of the brain that's responsible for theory of mind is affected. And theory of mind can become impaired, which means when I am with you and I'm using you may get very angry with me because you don't think I care about you. Now, if you don't think I care about you, you're going to treat me a certain way. And these things are contributing to stigma because that's about morality. But it's the brain. The brain is shutting it down. You put that person in a condition where they are sober, they feel enormous guilt, right? Because they know they've done something to hurt somebody else. But what we try to do is say, Responsibility is different than guilt. This is what happens to your brain when you're using drugs. Right? It's shutting down your ability to be empathic to other people. I'll give you the best example of that, the worst example of that. We had a kid uh, at Castle uh, who was 14 years old, addicted to heroin. For his 13th birthday, his mother, who was also a heroin addict, taught him how to shoot heroin. Okay. The heroine had overcome even her maternal instinct to protect with little idea 
of the empathic response. What would this do to my child? It wasn't there. Not her fault, not because she was a bad person. So that's what stigma does. Stigma is generated in part because a person doesn't understand what's happening in the brain of the addicted. And that in the brain of the addicted, it's affecting their ability to be empathic. But everybody wants to feel valuable. And when we do not feel valued by other people, either we've got a problem or they do. And more often than not, it's them. There's something wrong with them. What progress have you seen being made in the treatment and prevention of opioid addiction? So um, we have something called medication-assisted treatment where we have just a few medicines that we can use to help folks with the opioid addiction so that they are not craving and they're not in withdrawal and they're living their lives. Methadone, Suboxone, Subutex, something called naltrexone and Vivitrol, which is an injectable form. And I think, you know, these medicines uh, have really helped people um, manage their addiction so they can live their lives. And then slowly they will come off of these medicines. So, you know, we consider, you know, addiction a chronic condition. So it can last a long, long time, which means that, you know, recovery is a marathon, not a sprint. But that's one of the main things, is that we now have medication-assisted uh, treatment. I think we have a much deeper understanding of what addiction is. We have a greater understanding of the neuroscience. Drugstory Theater is capitalizing on that understanding and trying to teach it in a very simplified way to young children so they can understand what they're given away if they're using drugs. Um, so I think those things are important. I think the fact that, that we have uh, greater availability of naltrexone is one thing, but also uh, of having Narcan. So we've been able to save a lot of lives. And, you know, you really need to be able to save a life before you can treat a life. So we've saved a lot of people, and thankfully a lot of those people are now in, in treatment and beginning to really wonder, you know, if they need to continue doing this. So I, I think, you know, more and more knowledge, awareness, understanding, and getting rid of the stigma. Uh, I think that that really is beginning to happen. Thanks for listening to this episode of Opioid Abuse on the South Shore. To watch our documentary on the subject, click the link in the description.